Chapter Seventeen of Memoirs of Napoleon Bonaparte, Volume Three, by Louis Antoine Fauvelet de Bourrienne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Gillian Hendry. Chapter Seventeen, seventeen ninety eight to seventeen ninety nine. Bonaparte's departure for Suez, crossing the desert, passage of the Red Sea, the Fountain of Moses, the Cenobites of Mount Sinai. Danger in recrossing the Red Sea. Napoleon's return to Cairo. Money borrowed at Genoa. New designs upon Syria. Dissatisfaction of the Ottoman port. Plan for invading Asia. Gigantic schemes. General Berthier's permission to return to France. His romantic love and the adored portrait. He gives up his permission to return home. Louis Bonaparte leaves Egypt. The first cashmere shawl in France. Intercepted correspondence. Departure for Syria. Fountains of Masudish. Bonaparte jealous. Discontent of the troops. El Arish taken. Aspect of Syria. Ramle. Jerusalem. On the 24th of December, we set out for Suez, where we arrived on the 26th. On the 25th, we encamped in the desert some leagues before Adgeroth. The heat had been very great during the day, but about eleven at night the cold became so severe as to be precisely in an inverse ratio to the temperature of the day. This desert, which is the route of the caravans from Suez, from Tor, and the countries situated on the north of Arabia, is strewed with the bones of the men and animals who for ages past have perished in crossing it. As there was no wood to be got, we collected a quantity of these bones for fuel. Monge himself was induced to sacrifice some of the curious skulls of animals which he had picked up on the way and deposited in the Berlin of the General-in-Chief. But no sooner had we kindled our fires than an intolerable effluvium obliged us to raise our camp and advance farther on, for we could procure no water to extinguish the fires. On the 27th, Bonaparte employed himself in inspecting the town and port of Suez, and in giving orders for some naval and military works. He feared, what indeed really occurred after his departure from Egypt, the arrival of some English troops from the East Indies, which he had intended to invade. These regiments contributed to the loss of his conquest. Footnote. Sir David Baird, with a force of about 7,000 men sent from India, landed at Kosea in July 1801. End footnote. On the morning of the 28th, we crossed the Red Sea, dry-shod, to go to the wells of Moses, which are nearly a myriameter from the eastern coast and a little southeast of Suez. The Gulf of Arabia terminates at about 5,000 metres north of that city. Near the port, the Red Sea is not above 1,500 metres wide, and is always fordable at low water. The caravans from Tor and Mount Sinai always pass at that part, either in going to or returning from Egypt. This shortens their journey nearly a myriameter. At high tide, the water rises five or six feet at Suez, 
and when the wind blows fresh, it often rises to nine or ten feet. Footnote. I shall say nothing of the Cenobites of Mount Sinai, as I had not the honour of seeing them. Neither did I see the register containing the names of Ali, Saladin, Ibrahim, or Abraham, on which Bonaparte is said to have inscribed his name. I perceived at a distance some high hills which were said to be Mount Sinai. I conversed, through the medium of an interpreter, with some Arabian chiefs of Tor and its neighbourhood. They had been informed of our excursion to the wells, and that they might there thank the French general for the protection granted to their caravans and their trade with Egypt. On the 19th of December, before his departure from Suez, Bonaparte signed a sort of safeguard of exemption from duties for the convent of Mount Sinai. This had been granted out of respect to Moses and the Jewish nation, and also because the convent of Mount Sinai is a seat of learning and civilization amidst the barbarism of the deserts. Burien. End of footnote. We spent a few hours seated by the largest of the springs called the Wells of Moses situated on the eastern shore of the Gulf of Arabia. We made coffee with the water from these springs, which, however, gave it such a brackish taste that it was scarcely drinkable. Though the water of the eight little springs which form the wells of Moses is not so salt as that of many wells dug in other parts of the deserts, it is nevertheless exceedingly brackish, and does not allay thirst so well as fresh water. Bonaparte returned to Suez that same night. It was very dark when we reached the seashore. The tide was coming up, and the water was pretty high. We deviated a little from the way we had taken in the morning. We crossed a little too low down. We were thrown into disorder. But we did not lose ourselves in the marshes, as has been stated. There were none. I have read somewhere, though I did not see the fact, nor did I hear it mentioned at the time, that the tide which was coming up would have been the grave of the general-in-chief had not one of the guides saved him by carrying him on his shoulders. If any such danger had existed, all who had not a similar means of escape must have perished. This is a fabrication. General Caffarelli was the only person who was really in danger, for his wooden leg prevented his sitting firmly on his horse in the water. But some persons came to his assistance and supported him. Footnote. Bonaparte extricated himself, as the others did, from the real danger he and his escort had run. At St. Helena, he said, quote, Profiting by the low tide, I crossed the Red Sea dry-shod. On my return, I was overtaken by the night and went astray in the middle of the rising tide. I ran the greatest danger. I nearly perished in the same manner as Pharaoh did. This would certainly have furnished all the Christian preachers with a magnificent test against me. End quote. Bourrienne. End footnote. On his return to Cairo, the General-in-Chief wished to discover the site of the canal which in ancient times formed a junction between the Red Sea and the Nile by Belbase. Monsieur Le Père, who was a member of the Egyptian Institute and is now Inspector General of Bridges and Highways, executed on the spot a beautiful plan 
which may confidently be consulted by those who wish to form an accurate idea of that ancient communication and the level of the two seas footnote since accurately ascertained during the progress of the works for the suez canal End footnote. on his arrival at the capital bonaparte again devoted all his thoughts to the affairs of the army which he had not attended to during his short absence the revenues of egypt were far from being sufficient to meet the military expenditure to defray his own expenses bonaparte raised several considerable loans in genoa through the medium of monsieur james the connection of james with the bonaparte family takes its date from this period footnote joseph bonaparte says that the fathers of napoleon and of monsieur james had long known one another and that napoleon had met james at autun note error tome one page two hundred and ninety six End note. End footnote. since the month of august the attention of general bonaparte had been constantly fixed on syria the period of the possible landing of an enemy in egypt had now passed away and could not return until the month of july in the following year bonaparte was fully convinced that that landing would take place and he was not deceived the ottoman porte had indeed been persuaded that the conquest of egypt was not in her interest she preferred enduring a rebel whom she hoped one day to subdue to supporting a power which under the specious pretext of reducing her insurgent bays to obedience deprived her of one of her finest provinces and threatened the rest of the empire on his return to cairo the general-in-chief had no longer any doubts as to the course which the port intended to adopt the numerous class of persons who believed that the ottoman port had consented to our occupation of egypt were suddenly undeceived it was then asked how we could without that consent have attempted such an enterprise nothing it was said could justify the temerity of such an expedition if it should produce a rupture between france the ottoman empire and its allies however for the remainder of the year bonaparte dreaded nothing except an expedition from gaza and el arish of which the troops of jezer had already taken possession this occupation was justly regarded as a decided act of hostility war was thus practically declared we must adopt anticipatory measures thought napoleon we must destroy this advanced guard of the ottoman empire overthrow the ramparts of jaffa and acre ravage the country destroy all her resources so as to render the passage of an army across the desert impracticable thus was planned the expedition against syria general berthier after repeated entreaties had obtained permission to return to france the courageuse frigate which was to convey him home was fitted out at alexandria he had received his instructions and was to leave cairo on the twenty ninth of january ten days before bonaparte's departure for syria bonaparte was sorry to part with him but he could not endure to see an old friend and one who had served him well in all his campaigns dying before his eyes the victim of nostalgia and romantic love besides berthier had been for some time past 
anything but active in the discharge of his duties. His passion, which amounted almost to madness, impaired the feeble faculties with which nature had endowed him. Some writers have ranked him in the class of sentimental lovers. Be this as it may, the homage which Berthier rendered to the portrait of the object of his adoration more frequently excited our merriment than our sensibility. One day I went with an order from Bonaparte to the chief of his staff, whom I found on his knees before the portrait of Madame Visconti, which was hanging opposite the door. I touched him to let him know I was there. He grumbled a little, but did not get angry. The moment was approaching when the two friends were to part, perhaps forever. Bonaparte was sincerely distressed at this separation, and the chief of his staff was informed of the fact. At a moment when it was supposed Berthier was on his way to Alexandria, he presented himself to the general-in-chief. "'You are then decidedly going to Asia?' said he. "'You know,' replied the general, "'that all is ready, and I shall set out in a few days. "'Well, I will not leave you. "'I voluntarily renounce all idea of returning to France. "'I could not endure to forsake you at a moment "'when you are going to encounter new dangers. "'Here are my instructions and my passport.' Bonaparte, highly pleased with this resolution, embraced Berthier, and the coolness which had been excited by his request to return home was succeeded by a sincere reconciliation. Louis Bonaparte, who was suffering from the effects of the voyage, was still at Alexandria. The general-in-chief, yielding to the pacific views of his younger brother, who was also beginning to evince some symptoms of nostalgia, consented to his return home. He could not, however, depart until the 11th of March, 1799. I felt the absence of Louis very much. On his return to France, Louis passed through Sens, where he dined with Madame de Bourrienne, to whom he presented a beautiful shawl, which General Berthier had given me. This, I believe, was the first cashmere that had ever been seen in France. Louis was much surprised when Madame de Bourrienne showed him the Egyptian correspondence which had been seized by the English and printed in London. He found in the collection some letters addressed to himself, and there were others, he said, which were likely to disturb the peace of more than one family on the return of the army. On the 11th of February, 1799, we began our march for Syria with about 12,000 men. It has been erroneously stated that the army amounted to only 6,000. Nearly that number was lost in the course of the campaign. However, at the very moment we were on our way to Syria with 12,000 men, scarcely as many being left in Egypt, the directory published that, quote, according to the information which had been received, end quote, we had 60,000 infantry and 10,000 cavalry, that the army had doubled its numbers by battles, and that, since our arrival in Egypt, we had lost only 300 men. Is history to be written from such documents? We arrived about four o'clock in the afternoon at Musudia, or the fortunate spot. Here we witnessed a kind of phenomenon which was not a little agreeable to us. 
Musidia is a place situated on the coast of the Mediterranean, surrounded with little dunes of very fine sand, which the copious rains of winter readily penetrate. The rain remains in the sand, so that on making with the fingers holes of four or five inches in depth at the bottom of these little hills, the water immediately flows out. This water was indeed rather thick, but its flavour was agreeable, and it would have become clear if we could have spared time to allow it to rest and deposit the particles of sand it contained. It was a curious spectacle to behold us all lying prostrate, digging wells in miniature, and displaying a laughable selfishness in our endeavours to obtain the most abundant source. This was a very important discovery to us. We found these sand wells at the extremity of the desert, and it contributed in no small degree to revive the courage of our soldiers. Besides, when men are, as was the case with us, subject to privations of every kind, the least benefit which accrues inspires the hope of a new advantage. We were approaching the confines of Syria, and we enjoyed by anticipation the pleasure we were about to experience on treading a soil which by its variety of verdure and vegetation would remind us of our native land. At Mesidia we likewise possessed the advantage of bathing in the sea, which was not more than fifty paces from our unexpected water supply. Whilst near the wells of Mesidia, on the way to El Arish, I one day saw Bonaparte walking alone with Juno, as he was often in the habit of doing. I stood at a little distance, and my eyes, I know not why, were fixed on him during their conversation. The general's countenance, which was always pale, had, without my being able to divine the cause, become paler than usual. There was something convulsive in his features, a wildness in his look, and he several times struck his head with his hand. After conversing with Juno about a quarter of an hour, he quitted him and came towards me. I never saw him exhibit such an air of dissatisfaction, or appear so much under the influence of some prepossession. I advanced towards him, and as soon as we met, he exclaimed in an abrupt and angry tone, So, I find I cannot depend upon you. These women. Josephine, if you had loved me, you would before now have told me all I have heard from Junot. He is a real friend. Josephine, and I six hundred leagues from her. You ought to have told me that she should thus have deceived me. Woe to them. I will exterminate the whole race of fops and puppies. As to her, divorce. Yes, divorce. A public and open divorce. I must write. I know all. It is your fault. You ought to have told me. These energetic and broken exclamations, his disturbed countenance and altered voice, informed me but too well of the subject of his conversation with Juno. I saw that Junot had been drawn into a culpable indiscretion, and that, if Josephine had committed any faults, he had cruelly exaggerated them. My situation was one of extreme delicacy. However, I had the good fortune to retain my self-possession, and as soon as some degree of calmness succeeded to this first burst, I replied that I knew nothing of the reports which Junot might have communicated to him 
that even if such reports, often the offspring of calumny, had reached my ear, and if I had considered it my duty to inform him of them, I certainly would not have selected for that purpose the moment when he was six hundred leagues from France. I also did not conceal how blamable Juno's conduct appeared to me, and how ungenerous I considered it thus rashly to accuse a woman who was not present to justify or defend herself, that it was no great proof of attachment to add domestic uneasiness to the anxiety already sufficiently great which the situation of his brothers-in-arms at the commencement of a hazardous enterprise occasioned him. Notwithstanding these observations, which, however, he listened to with some calmness, the word divorce still escaped his lips, and it is necessary to be aware of the degree of irritation to which he was liable when anything seriously vexed him, to be able to form an idea of what Bonaparte was during this painful scene. However, I kept my ground. I repeated what I had said. I begged of him to consider with what facility tales were fabricated and circulated, and that gossip such as that which had been repeated to him was only the amusement of idle persons, and deserved the contempt of strong minds. I spoke of his glory. My glory? cried he. I know not what I would not give if that which Juno has told me should be untrue. So much do I love Josephine. If she be really guilty, a divorce must separate us forever. I will not submit to be a laughing-stock for all the imbeciles in Paris. I will write to Joseph. He will get the divorce declared. Although his agitation continued long, intervals occurred in which he was less excited. I seized one of these moments of comparative calm to combat this idea of divorce, which seemed to possess his mind. I represented to him especially that it would be imprudent to write to his brother with reference to a communication which was probably false. The letter might be intercepted. It would betray the feelings of irritation which dictated it. As to a divorce, it would be time to think of that hereafter, but advisedly. These last words produced an effect on him which I could not have ventured to hope for so speedily. He became tranquil, listened to me as if he had suddenly felt the justice of my observations, dropped the subject, and never returned to it, except that about a fortnight after, when we were before Saint-Jean-d'Arc, he expressed himself greatly dissatisfied with Junot, and complained of the injury he had done him by his indiscreet disclosures, which he began to regard as the inventions of malignity. I perceived afterwards that he never pardoned Junot for this indiscretion, and I can state almost with certainty that this was one of the reasons why Junot was not created a marshal of France, like many of his comrades, whom Bonaparte had loved less. It may be supposed that Josephine, who was afterwards informed by Bonaparte of Junot's conversation, did not feel particularly interested in his favour. He died insane on the 27th of July, 1813. Footnote. However indiscreet Junot might on this occasion have shown himself in interfering in so delicate a matter, 
it is pretty certain that his suspicions were breathed to no other ear than that of bonaparte himself madame junot in speaking of the ill-suppressed enmity between her husband and madame bonaparte says that he never uttered a word even to her of the subject of his conversation with the general-in-chief to egypt that junot's testimony however notwithstanding the countenance it obtained from bonaparte's relations ought to be cautiously received the following passage from the memoirs of the duchesse d'abronte volume one page two hundred and fifty demonstrative of the feelings of irritation between the parties will show quote, junot escorted madame bonaparte when she went to join the general-in-chief in italy i am surprised that m de bourrienne has omitted mentioning this circumstance in his memoirs he must have known it since he was well acquainted with everything relating to josephine and knew many facts of high interest in her life at this period and subsequently how happens it too that he makes no mention of mademoiselle louise who might be called her demoiselle de compagnie rather than her femme de chambre at the outset of the journey to italy she was such a favourite with josephine that she dressed like her mistress ate at table with her and was in all respects her friend and confidante the journey was long much too long for junot though he was very much in love with mademoiselle louise but he was anxious to join the army for to him his general was always the dearest of mistresses junot has often spoken to me and to me alone of the vexations he experienced on this journey he might have added to his circumstantial details relative to josephine the conversation he is reported to have had with bonaparte to egypt but he never breathed a word on the subject for his character was always noble and generous the journey to italy did not produce the effect which usually arises from such incidents in common life namely a closer friendship and intimacy between the parties on the contrary madame bonaparte from that moment evinced some degree of ill-humour towards junot and complained with singular warmth of the want of respect which he had shown her in making love to her femme de chambre before her face according to erreur tome one pages four and fifty junot was not then in syria on the tenth of february napoleon was at Musudia junot only arrived from egypt at gaza on the twenty fifth of february madame d'abrante volume two page thirty two treats this conversation as apocryphal quote, this note an anecdote of her own end note, is not an imaginary episode like that for example of making a person speak at Masudia who never was there end quote. End footnote our little army continued its march on el arish where we arrived on the seventeenth of february the fatigues experienced in the desert and the scarcity of water excited violent murmurs amongst the soldiers during their march across the isthmus when any person on horseback passed them they studiously expressed their discontent the advantage possessed by the horsemen provoked their sarcasms I never heard the verses which they are said to have repeated, but they indulged in the most violent language against the Republic, the men of science, 
and those whom they regarded as the authors of the expedition. Nevertheless, these brave fellows, from whom it was not astonishing that such great privations should extort complaints, often compensated by their pleasantries for the bitterness of their reproaches. Many times during the crossing of the Isthmus I have seen soldiers, parched with thirst and unable to wait till the hour for distribution of water, pierce the leathern bottles which contained it, and this conduct, so injurious to all, occasioned numerous quarrels. El Arish surrendered on the 17th of February. It has been erroneously stated that the garrison of this insignificant place, which was set at liberty on condition of not again serving against us, was afterwards found amongst the besieged at Jaffa. It has also been stated that it was because the men composing the El Arish garrison did not proceed to Baghdad, according to the capitulation, that we shot them at Jaffa. We shall presently see the falsehood of these assertions. On the 28th of February, we obtained the first glimpse of the green and fertile plains of Syria, which in many respects reminded us of the climate and soil of Europe. We now had rain, and sometimes rather too much. The feelings which the sight of the valleys and mountains called forth made us in some degree forget the hardships and vexations of an expedition of which few persons could foresee the object or end. There are situations in life when the slightest agreeable sensation alleviates all our ills. On the 1st of March we slept at Ramle, footnote, Ramle, the ancient Arimathea, is situated at the base of a chain of mountains, the eastern extremity of which is washed by the Persian Gulf and the western by the Mediterranean, Burien. End footnote. In a small convent, occupied by two monks, who paid us the greatest attention. They gave us the church for a hospital. These good fathers did not fail to tell us that it was through this place the family of Jesus Christ passed into Egypt, and showed us the wells at which they quenched their thirst. The pure and cool water of these wells delighted us. We were not more than about six leagues from Jerusalem. I asked the general whether he did not intend to direct his march by the way of that city, so celebrated in many respects. He replied, Oh, no, Jerusalem is not in my line of operations. I do not wish to be annoyed by mountaineers in difficult roads. And besides, on the other side of the mountain I should be assailed by swarms of cavalry. I am not ambitious of the fate of Cassius. We therefore did not enter Jerusalem, which was not disturbed by the war. All we did was to send a written declaration to the persons in power at Jerusalem, assuring them that we had no design against that country, and only wished them to remain at peace. To this communication no answer was returned, and nothing more passed on the subject. Footnote. Sir Walter Scott says, speaking of Bonaparte, that he believes that little officer of artillery dreamed of being king of Jerusalem. What I have just stated proves that he never thought of such a thing. The little officer of artillery had a far more splendid dream in his head. Bourrienne. End footnote. We found at Ramla between two and three hundred Christians 
in a pitiable state of servitude, misery, and dejection. On conversing with them, I could not help admiring how much the hope of future rewards may console men under present ills. But I learned from many of them that they did not live in harmony together. The feelings of hatred and jealousy are not less common amongst these people than amongst the better instructed inhabitants of rich and populous cities. End of chapter 17